So thank you very much, Ron. Uh, I will apologize ahead of time to my uh, UCSD colleagues, because about half of this talk you did see on Friday. So you can take a little nap. So my task today is to provide you with an update on data that were presented at CROI in March this year, but with a caveat that I won't be covering a lot of information that subsequent speakers will, co will cover. So it's really an update from all of us related to CROI. My financial relationships and the learning objectives for this talk you can look at in your syllabus. And I'm going to move right into the first talk and some comments related to presentations on cure of HIV. Many of you probably saw a lot of press coverage about what we consider to be potentially a second cure of HIV. And this is being referred to as the London patient as opposed to the Berlin patient. So it seems they can only cure HIV in Europe. But. Uh, this was a patient similar to Timothy Brown, the Berlin patient, diagnosed uh, years ago with HIV infection, had well, relatively well-preserved CD4 count and low viral load, so did not go on antiretroviral therapy until he was diagnosed with stage 4B Hodgkin lymphoma in 2013. He started on effective antiretroviral therapy and was virally suppressed at the time he underwent chemotherapy but after failing multiple cycles of chemotherapy and the first attempt to mobilize stem cells for an autologous stem cell transplant, he, he was subsequently referred for an allogeneic stem cell transplant with a donor who had a CCR5 Delta 32 mutation. He underwent chemotherapy conditioning and then stem cell infusion in May of 2016, the usual hospital course complicated by infectious complications and graft-versus-host disease. And this just gives you a recapitulation of these data over the time course of his disease. And I only want to point out here that he has been off of antiretroviral therapy for 18 months now, as of February 2019. There have been multiple attempts to cultivate HIV from a variety of sources, including reservoir sources. And he remains culture negative with no ability to culture virus from any site. His CD4 cell count has remained preserved, and he's fully virologically suppressed, so no measurable HIV in any uh, body site to date. He has some things in common with the Berlin patient, and I've just highlighted these in red on the slide. The, both of these patients had a primarily CCR5-using virus. They both underwent stem cell transplantation. Timothy Brown, of course, a second one. Um, they both had T-cell depletion prior to their stem cell transplant with a variety of different T-cell depleting agents. Both had mild graft-versus-host disease, and both achieved 100% T-cell donor chimerism. So I think this continues to give us hope that there are approaches that can cure HIV, although obviously stem cell transplantation is not a universal approach for this, for our uh, armamentarium. There were a number of other studies presented at CROI that attempted to look at other strategies that are being evaluated for HIV cure. The two major strategies are gene editing, and latency reversal in combination with immunologic or immunobiologic agents, as you heard about earlier. 
So in relationship to gene editing studies, there were, was a nice, what I would consider to be positive study in an SIV-infected non-human primate model using an adenovirus vector and CRISPR-Cas system, uh, novel uh, gene editing system that was a a able to excise SIV DNA from this non-human primate model and no viral outgrowth subsequent to this treatment, suggesting it was a, a successful experiment, at least in the short term. In a human study presented by Pablo Tebas, a similar adenovirus vector uh, was utilized, but this time with a zinc finger nuclease gene editing system. And although it didn't result in no viral outgrowth post uh, treatment with a single dose of cytoxin in this gene editing procedure, an analytic treatment interruption demonstrated a significant delay in viral rebound, and the patient's been maintained on with only low-level viremia since without requiring reinitiation of antiretroviral therapy. And then the latency reversible, reversal data has been uh, checkered, if you will, even talking about checkpoint inhibitors, checkered. Um, Looking at romadepsin, which is another HDAC inhibitor, a uh, significant study done by the AIDS Clinical Trials Group Network failed to demonstrate consistent reservoir activation or latency reversal in, with the use of romadepsin, whereas an anti-PD-1 checkpoint in inhibitor, pembrolizumab, was able to uh, at least activate reservoir and demonstrate an early decrease in HIV DNA from those patients from whom reservoir was activated. And then the last presentation was really uh, an attempt to expand on our utility of broadly neutralizing antibodies by creating or modeling a tri-specific broadly neutralizing antibody that has greater antiviral activity than mono or bispecific monoclonal uh, broadly neutralizing antibodies. And this has displayed potent antiviral activity in a SHIV model in non-human primates and is poised to go into its first in man testing uh, in, shortly through the AIDS Clinical Trials Group Network and the NIH Clinical Center. So the other big piece of, uh, I won't call it cure information, but uh, got a big publicity splash was the proposal to implement strategies to end the HIV epidemic in the U.S. by the year 2030. Mm -hmm. If any of you watched the uh, announcement by, at the State of the Union address, creating this new goal for the U.S. Tony Fauci did a nice presentation kind of summarizing what tools we might have available to us to actually accomplish an end to the HIV epidemic in the United States, and then further went on to highlight what the plan is for implementing this strategy. And the plan really is fairly simple, making use of tools we already have available to us, and they include uh, 75 percent reduction in new HIV infections in the next five years, a 90 percent reduction in the next 10 years, and to be accomplished by a three-pronged approach. The first is to step up our efforts to diagnose people who are not yet diagnosed with HIV infection with greater or more broadly ap applicable screening strategies to treat those who are found to be infected immediately and effectively so that they have a sustained viral suppression, 
re, uh, with the leg being the treatment as prevention approach, and then thirdly, protecting people at risk by implementing broadly active and potent pre-exposure prophylaxis for high-risk populations. And this is then to be added to by a focus on incident hotspots around the United States, those areas that have the highest burden of new HIV diagnoses, and you can see in this heat map, those areas that are marked in blue and little pockets in darker blue are the highest incidence of new seroconversion in the U.S. and focusing on interventions that will abrogate new HIV clusters of transmission. And this three-pronged approach is now in development with an impl implementation plan that we hope to hear more about in detail in the coming months. So with that in mind, I'm going to go on and talk about people who are HIV infected and looking at end organ disease and metabolic complications presented at CROI. The first study I'm going to highlight was a very nice uh, analysis of risk for myocardial infarction in people living with HIV who have underlying chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. As you know, there are an emerging body of data to substantiate that HIV in and of itself is a risk factor for myocardial infarction and atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease for both type 1 and type 2 myocardial infarction. Just to remind you all, a type 1 MI is the traditional atherosclerotic myocardial infarction with plaque rupture and thrombus formation. And a type 2 or secondary MI is really the consequence of reduced coronary artery blood flow, either through vasospasm induced by drugs such as cocaine use or a supply and demand mismatch, such as you might see with bacteremia or sepsis that causes hypotension in a vulnerable population. Both of these types of MIs are seen at higher rates in people living with HIV infection, and this study proposed to look at COPD as another risk factor. And this is based on the finding that COPD increases subclinical markers for cardiovascular disease and incident MI in people who do not have underlying HIV disease. And there has been no attempt to systematically evaluate this question in HIV. There's one small study that suggested people with more severe emphysema based on CT scan defined abnormalities had higher rates of coronary artery calcification uh, uh, surrogate marker for risk of MI. So the bottom line from this study is looking at 22,500 people living with HIV derived from five scenics clinics, a large observational database study defining COPD based on an electronic health record algorithm which was subsequently validated by spirometry in a subset of participants, and also including ICD-9 codes related to COPD and the prescription of greater than 90 days of continuous short or long-acting COPD medications. Patients were followed for a median of six years and for a median of three and a half years after a COPD diagnosis. There were 704 acute MI, incident MIs identified in this cohort and 55% of these were the traditional type 1 primary atherosclerotic MIs, and 45% were actually type 2 MIs secondary to either sepsis or in some type of drug abuse situation. 
And the bottom line from this study is shown in the first bullet point here. COPD was associated with about a two to two and a half fold increased risk for both type one and type two myocard myocardial infarction independent of smoking. Although if you look at the table here, smoking did ameliorate the risk to some degree for type one MIs as you might imagine, but not for type two. The authors hypothesized there were multiple mechanisms underlying this increased risk, and in particular, perhaps due to the severity of COPD disease, inadequate control of COPD symptoms, or recurrent pneumonia seen in people with COPD, suggesting that it's a multifactorial uh, increased risk in myocardial infarction. So just something else to think about as we talk to patients about myocardial disease. So the next observation is uh, summarized in the title, Breaking Bones is Bad, and it's bad for people living with HIV. This is a description of another very large analysis from an observational cohort study from this time from the HOPS uh, cohort uh, sites that looked at participants who were being seen in care at eight active or recently active HOP sites that had at least two encounters over the observation period of 2000 to 2017. And in the light of those eligibility uh, criteria emerged with about 6,800 participants who were analyzed for incident fracture. They identified 506 incident fractures in that cohort over the period of observation. On the left-hand side of the slide in orange were, major, were primarily traumatic fractures of foot, leg, hand, rib, ankle. But in the middle of the slide here, you can see that there were appreciable rates of osteopedic and osteoporotic fractures at the wrist, uh, spine, hip, or pelvis, and shoulder. And the top part of the slide shows you independent risks of mortality associated with a number of factors that are poor prognostic findings, but in the middle of that were incident fractures, which resulted in about a 45% increased risk of all-cause mortality, independent risk of all-cause mortality. When you looked at the group of individuals who had incident fractures, they were about a median age of 48, a CD4 count of nearly 500, reasonably suppressed viral load prior to their fracture. And when you looked at major osteoporotic fractures in that group, they were associated with a 65% increased all-cause mortality, independent of other risk factors. So, Hence the title of the talk, Breaking Bones is Bad, and it's bad for people with HIV co-infection. The next organ system here is uh, women with HIV infection with recurrent cervical high-grade squamous intraepithelial lesions, uh, precursor to cervical cancer. This was a study that looked at in a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial in 180 women who were HIV infected and had high-grade lesions. They were randomized to receive the quadrivalent uh, human papillomavirus vaccine, or placebo, at entry at week four and at week 26, 
with the intent here to look at the ability of HPV vaccination to boost the immune response and reduce the recurrence rate after effective treatment for high-grade lesions. So all of the women at week four in this study underwent, underwent a standard of care LEAP procedure and then were followed by colposcopic biopsy and cervical cytology. Unfortunately, this was a negative study. And if you look at the table here, the proportion of women who had reached a primary endpoint, meaning recurrent cytologic or histologic evidence of recurrent high-grade lesions, the rate was the same regardless of whether they got vaccine or placebo and regardless of what grade of abnormality one looked at. So unfortunately, HPV vaccination is not an approach that will reduce recurrence after LEAP treatment. There was a lot of attention given in the last year to other end organ consequences of integrase inhibitors. One of those has been the uh, observation from a large study uh, following pregnant women in Botswana, suggesting that there may be an increased risk of neural tube defects with integrase inhibitors. You all got that um, black box warning from the FDA. Subsequent to that initial report, there have been numerous prospective analyses from randomized clinical trials of dolutegravir and from analyses of antiretroviral pregnancy registries, both in Europe and the US, that have not demonstrated further cases of neural tube defect directly related to the exposure to integrase inhibitors at conception, as was described in that cohort. Lynn Moffinson did a very nice presentation summarizing all of these data and the risks, not just with integrase inhibitors, but with other drugs used during pregnancy. And the only consistent finding, if you review all of these data, about risks of preconception exposure to antiretroviral drugs in pregnant women has been the higher rate of preterm delivery in people with HIV infection exposed during pregnancy. But going back to the dolutegravir issue, she showed a very nice modeling study that looked at how many more cases of neural tube defect in women on dolutegravir we would need to see to establish whether or not this is truly related to dolutegravir. The bottom line here is that there have been no new defects. The background prevalence of neural tube defect is 0.1% or one in a thousand in the general population. And if we see no more reports of neural tube defect among the 1,400 pregnant women being followed in the Botswana cohort or the antiretroviral pregnancy registries, we can safely say that it's not a dolutegravir-associated effect, and this occurred by chance. And this slide just, I won't belabor the point, but just shows you how many more pregnancies we would need to evaluate if there were one, two, or three more reports of neural tube defect. But I think by the end of this year, we will have much more confirmatory information on this issue. Another end organ uh, complication of integrase inhibitors received a lot of attention at CROI, and that was the issue of weight gain. You'll hear more about this in the case presentation, so I won't go into great detail, but just to show you one example of a study that reported over 24,000 treatment-naive people looking at integrase inhibitor weight gain, and the summary data here shows you that there was higher five-year weight gain a uh, median of six kilos in people, people who got integrase inhibitors 
compared to PIs or NNRTIs. And then among the integrase inhibitors, dolutegravir was greater than raltegravir or elvitegravir. There's no uh, consideration or further data on what is the mechanism for weight gain. And this remains an area of intense investigation, both in cohort studies and in analyses of clinical trials. For the last 10 minutes, I'm going to move on to opportunistic infections. The reason that's confined to 10 minutes is because there isn't a lot new going on in opportunistic infections in HIV. So I'm going to bore you with my favorite topic, which is TB, which is the focus of much of my research. But suffice it to say that tuberculosis globally is the single biggest infectious disease cause of death for the whole global population. It's also the single most uh, frequent cause of death for HIV-infected people. And this is why it's being emphasized in HIV conferences now around the globe. This was a nice study attempting to look at one of our alternative regimens for treatment of latent TB infection to prevent activation of tuberculosis the once-a-week dose of rifepentine with isoniazid given over a three-month period. There were early reports suggesting that dolutegravir used with rifepentine was associated with a higher rate of adverse events, and this study attempted to look both at safety and pharmacokinetics. I won't go into great detail about the intensive PK design of this study, but just suffice it to say that the study looked at PK and safety both with dolutegravir alone and after dosing with 3-HP over a time course uh, in two groups of individuals. And the bottom line from this study is that there was no increase in inflammatory markers, viral load was fully suppressed with adequate dolutegravir, levels throughout the course of follow-up. There were three patients who had grade two or three adverse events. Only one of this was, these was attributed to rifepentine, and that was a flu-like illness. So the conclusion being that it's probably safe to use this alternative for preventing reactivation of TB in people on dolutegravir. The second study related to TB built on data that were presented at last year's CROI looking at pregnant women who were randomized in high-risk uh, background or high-risk prevalence areas around the world, randomized to receive IPT during pregnancy to prevent TB versus deferring IPT until delivery. And if you'll recall from last year's conference, it showed that women who got IPT during pregnancy had a higher rate of adverse pregnancy outcomes related to fetal demise, prematurity, low birth weight, and congenital anomalies. Um, no individual abnormality emerged as uh, significant, but the con congregation of these abnormalities was statistically significant. This was an attempt to address the question in Soweto, South Africa, for pregnant women also being followed in an observational cohort, so not a randomized clinical trial, but receiving IPT for a direct clinical indication. And they compared their cohort of people who received IPT with women who did not during pregnancy. And conversely to the previous report, they found no increased incidence of adverse maternal or fetal outcomes in the study. So I think this is just adding further fuel 
to the controversy that we need more information before we can safely assume that IPT can be used during pregnancy, but for a specific clinical indication that's necessary. This is another interesting study to me, so I'm going to bore you with it, but I won't go into great detail. But around the world, where we're starting to see a dramatic rise in multidrug resistant tuberculosis, and because I live in San Diego and we are seeing a fairly substantial increase in MDR-TB in San Diego as well, um, high-dose isoniazid is now a recommended component in the treatment of MDR-TB if you're going to use the new WHO short course regimen. Why would high-dose INH be useful in that setting? Well, INH resistance is related to one of two key mutations in uh, TB. A CAT-G mutation is associated with high-level resistance. The INHA mutation with low-level resistance and using high-dose isoniazid may overcome that low-level resistance. Is it safe to do that and is it effective? So this was a study addressing both of those points, looking at safety and early bactericidal activity of three different doses of INH, 5, 10, or 15 milligrams per kilogram per day administered to individuals with multidrug resistant TB and compared that group to individuals who had drug susceptible TB getting isoniazid. There's a third group looking at people who had a CAT-G mutation rather than an INHA mutation, and that, that group is not finished yet. But the bottom line from this study shows that there was both an increase in early bactericidal activity and it was safe to use isoniazid at a dose of 10 to 15 milligrams per kilogram in people with MDR-TB. There was no increase in adverse events related to INH, and there was a dose response in the increase in mycobacterial activity when you increase the dose of isoniazid. And at the highest levels in MDR-TB, they actually got better killing than the five milligram per kilogram dose in drug-susceptible TB. So concluding that high-dose isoniazid, if you have the INHA mutation, is appropriate in the use of short-course MDR-TB treatment. I think this is the last uh, study I'll bore you with on TB, but looked at the, for people who are unable to take efavirenz or unable to take an integrase inhibitor, such as uh, raltegravir or dolutegravir, the only other option for antiretroviral treatment in the setting of TB is a, a protease inhibitor-based regimen. Globally, rifabutin is expensive. Actually, it's expensive in the US too and may not be available everywhere. And the only option in that setting is to double the dose of lopinavir ritonavir for use with rifampin. And so this was an attempt to look at a better tolerated protease inhibitor, darunavir. I won't go through the complicated PK study design here either, but just summarize for you that looking at double dose darunavir, ritonavir with various doses of rifampin was studied in this analysis. And again, the 
basic uh, conclusion from the study was that the first four patients who got the double dose had dramatic increases in ALT immediately along with symptoms and the study was stopped early because it was concluded that double dose darunavir ritonavir when combined with rifampin resulted in unacceptable hepatotoxicity and even if you were able to give it twice daily, most of the dosing was not associated with concentrations of darunavir that were adequate for antiretroviral therapy. So don't do it. Uh, the next study that uh, had an interesting finding, if you'll remember, we presented at this conference as well, the COAT trial, which looked at immediate versus deferred antiretroviral therapy in people with acute cryptococcal meningitis, concluding that you should wait at least four to five weeks before starting antiretroviral that therapy in that setting. There have been further analyses from that study looking at why the early mortality with antiretroviral therapy was higher. One of these studies looked at samples derived from patients enrolled in the trial and performed CMV testing on those samples. There were an equal number of patients in the early versus deferred ART arms who were found to have CMV viremia as measured by CMV DNA levels. And the consequence of CMV viremia was to significantly reduce survival in people who were uh, in the trial with acute uh, cryptococcal meningitis. So something we all know, I think intuitively, if, is, is if you have more than one OI, it's not a good thing. And CMV reactivation may occur in the setting of ART initiation and cryptococcal meningitis. So another thing to be aware of as we take care of patients with uh, advanced HIV. Um, primary prophylaxis for pneumocystis has also been an intensive area of investigation. This was another modeling study. I'll caution you, it's not a randomized study, but they took all comers in the COHERE database, almost 10,000 patients, they evaluated those who were on antiretroviral therapy, fully suppressed, on PCP prophylaxis, and had a CD4 count of less than 200. And they did three different trial simulations looking at the question of whether you should continue pneumocystis prophylaxis versus stop if you're virally suppressed, whether you should start prophylaxis or not if you're viral, virally suppressed, and if you are already on prophylaxis, should you stop if you're virally suppressed. And so it's a nice modeling study that overall resulted in this finding. There was an overall such a low incidence in pneumocystis in any group that they evaluated in these simulations that the hazard ratio estimates uh, were overlapping and not statistically significant, and their conclusion was that in virally suppressed patients, irrespective of other risk factors for pneumocystis, as outlined there, or CD4 cell count, the incidence of PCP or PJP was so low and it was similar on and off prophylaxis that we may be in an era where we can no longer require prophylaxis if we fully suppress people on antiretroviral therapy. My last two slides have to do with hepatitis C, and I'll quickly summarize these. This was a nice study out of the University of Pittsburgh in a group following 170 HCV-positive women who became pregnant during follow-up. 
They ultimately wound up screening 29 of these patients for treatment of hepatitis C during pregnancy in a pilot study, sofosbuvir and ledipasvir in combination. Only nine women actually were eligible for the trial because the remainder fell out with various eligibility concerns related to underlying genotype two or three, which is not covered by this particular regimen. But they were able to get nine pregnant women through a full course of treatment, and eight of those nine, with one still in follow-up, had complete and sustained virologic response during follow-up in the study. And if you look at pregnancy and delivery outcomes, there were no adverse maternal events, no adverse fetal event, uh, infant events, gestational age was the same as in an uninfected population, there were no infants infected with HCV and good outcomes in the mother. So this is providing us with some information about hepatitis C treatment being safe during pregnancy and more studies to come in that vein. And then my last slide relates to a uh, cautionary note about hepatitis C, which we think we've cured in most of our patients now. We have a broad pan-genotypic regimen for use in our patients, but it doesn't eliminate the issue of reinfection. And this looks at uh, acute hepatitis C surveillance cohort in which they identified 304 MSM who cleared HCV either through spontaneous clearance or after receiving treatment and achieving an SVR and then followed them prospectively. 33 of these 304 were reinfected. Fortunately, they were able to clear after reinfection with treatment with DAAs, but this was an incidence rate of 4.4 per 100 person years of follow-up in this cohort, um, far surpassing the rate of primary HCV infection. And interestingly, there were six individuals followed who had a second reinfection with a different HCV with a, for an incidence rate of 8.7 per 100 person years. So a lot of work to be done with education around transmission of HCV and the fact that once you're cured from the first episode, you are still at risk for reinfection. So I'll stop there. Thank you. Okay, um, if people have questions they'd like to ask personally, you can come to one of the microphones. Um, otherwise, I have a few uh, questions that were uh, given to me. Um, here's a question with regards to HPV uh, vaccination. Um, should all younger gay men receive an HPV vaccination? And uh, secondly, should all patients with HIV infections uh, receive statins, which is obviously another question. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that would be a personal opinion. I didn't really talk about statins, but uh, okay. uh, maybe I'll address the second question first. There is a very large randomized clinical trial of HIV-infected individuals, as all of you know, that uh, I think has enrolled over 7,500 patients up to this date. They've actually stopped the enrollment in that trial, and hopefully um, that is looking at statins versus placebo 
in HIV co-infection in people with a broad diversity of risk for underlying cardiovascular disease or not. And we should have results of that trial over the, I, I would hope, in the next year to 18 months. So I don't have any preliminary information from data from that trial to give you an answer to that right now. But I think eventually we'll be able to say whether all HIV-infected people should be on a statin. And then just related to HPV, I think in young men, this remains a controversial issue. Ron can probably answer this best from our AMC colleagues who have attempted to look at uh, HPV in young HIV-infected men, uh, HPV vaccination. It's certainly a recommendation for young women, and I think most of us who are in the infectious disease world would recommend it for young males as well. Whether it's recommended for all young men who are HIV co-infected, I don't think we know the answer to that yet, but one would hope that results will be available from the studies that are underway in that regard soon. There's certainly been studies that suggest you can dramatically reduce cervical uh, cancer rates with HPV vaccination of young women, so. Okay. Um, with regard to the Fern Harbor study, uh, Fern Haber study. <laughs> Fern um, Haber. Haber. Cindy Fern Haber. Um, the, with the quadrivalent HPV vaccine, it appeared that there was not right. uh, an effect in terms of reducing H-cell uh, presentation. Is there, is there any data anywhere as yet with regards to any vaccine for HPV having an effect? Not that I'm aware of, are you? Um, I think there was one study done in non-HIV that showed that the Anovio DNA uh, mm -hmm. vaccine may have reduced uh, incidence of cervical high seal um, in non-HIV positive women. And um, the incidence of first episode or recurrent disease? Recurrent disease. Okay. Yeah, it's people that already had high seal. And so we'll be looking at a similar thing for anal cancer. Yeah. Okay. Or anal high seal. Um, here's a question with regards to um, your New England Journal study on daily short course treatment of latent TB uh, with weight base uh, rifapentin and INH for one month. Uh, is the Favarin the only uh, antiretroviral drug that can be used with this combination, or can other drugs be used? And uh, do you have to dose adjust? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so both good questions. Um, I presented that study last year, I think, or one of my colleagues did, um, but it has obviously come out in the New England Journal this year. So one-month regimen of daily rifapentin and isoniazid was evaluated in 3,000 patients from a very high prevalence regions around the world, and uh, only about a quarter of those individuals had met the, what we would consider in the U.S. to be latently infected TB, and that's largely because there's such a high background prevalence uh, around the other countries that enrolled patients in that study that it didn't matter whether you were uh, tuberculin skin test positive or not. So the basic findings from the study demonstrated that giving one month of rifapentine with isoniazid in uh, weight-based rifapentine dosing and standard dose of isoniazid was as effective as giving nine months of isoniazid preventive therapy. And the TB rates and 
adverse event rates were exactly the same across both of those two treatment arms. Um, this is widely being accepted in the HIV world outside of the United States as an emerging alternative to the use of IPT. And the treatment completion rate in the one-month therapy arm was significantly better than the treatment completion rate in the nine months of INH arm. Um, the issue of antiretroviral therapy, the patients in that study only got NNRTI-based antiretroviral therapy. They were all allowed to use efavirenz during the, the four-week treatment course and then continued on an NNRTI-based regimen throughout the study, and the majority of patients were virally suppressed, at least to less than 400 copies, which was the standard of care uh, assay available in most of those countries. Um, how does that translate to our experience here? Well, there is another study that looked at the use of um, dolutegravir with uh, rifapentine that I showed today, so showing that a 12-week course of intermittent rifapentine and isoniazid in high dose was safe to use. Some of those data were available. There are data now being evaluated with the daily dolutegravir and rifapentine isoniazid dose, and those will be available later this year. But I can tell you just as a sneak peek, I think it's going to be fine, and this is going to be a reasonable alternative regimen for use in preventing TB. Um, okay. I don't remember the rest of the questions. <laughs> Was that pretty much it? Okay. You have to dose adjust. Do, dose adjust. Well, we did in that study, but if you have a reasonably, in the United States, um, probably not because we have a relatively large population by uh, standards compared with the rest of the world. The reason it was dose adjusted in the uh, patient in the study outside of the U.S. is that many populations of a, with HIV infection around the world are, uh, have low BMIs, and we also included adolescents in that group. And so we did weight-based therapy primarily for people with BMIs that were low. Okay. Um, someone asked a, question, a clarification question, I take mm -hmm. it, uh, with regards to the smoking NMI uh, study that you presented, um, did it appear that smoking decreased the risk of myocardial infarctions? Um, no, it didn't decrease the risk. What it did was, so these are all people with underlying COPD, and all it did was decrease the, the magnitude of the risk in people who had type 1 disease, meaning atherosclerotic disease. And that didn't, doesn't mean, it shouldn't be interpreted that smoking decreased the risk. It just means that the COPD was an independent risk factor, but didn't outweigh the risk of smoking in that group of individuals. So yes, smoking is still a risk. It's a big risk. But it, uh, it diluted the effect of COPD as a risk factor. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Um, we have a question with regards to HCV reinfection. And the question is, um, should you be checking for HCV resistance mutation in anyone who presents, let's say, with a reinfection with HCV? Well, um, I, I think this is an interesting question. There are cases reported of people who fail to achieve SVR because they have 
uh, low-grade or single mutation resistance mutations um, to HCV. But one thing to keep in mind is HCV doesn't have a latent reservoir. So having been exposed to a previous episode of HCV doesn't mean you're going to populate a reservoir that then will result in emergence of resistance later on. So that's only an issue if you've got acute infection and your patient may be failing to respond to immediate therapy. It's not an issue for subsequent reinfection. It's not a matter of reactivating a latent infection that then influences your risk of a subsequent episode of infection. These are all new infections with different HCV uh, uh, isolates. So you don't really need to do no, resistance mutations? No, you don't mutations. need to do resistance. Okay. Um, a question with regards to um, prophylaxis for patients that are stably suppressed. Um, you talked about the PCP prophylaxis. What about MEI prophylaxis? Would you do the same thing? <laughs> well, as many of you, if you read the uh, DHHS, IDSA, CDC guidelines, you will know that there's a recommend, new recommendation there in the last six months that we no longer recommend the use of primary or um, secondary prophylaxis for MAC disease, disseminated MAC. And that is because of similar data to the COHERE database with, with pneumocystis. Um, there is such a low background rate of MAC in the general population now that, uh, and such a re dramatic reduction in the risk of, MACs when you, of MAC when you virally suppress people on effective antiretroviral therapy that there doesn't appear to be a need for prophylaxis any longer. So the current recommendation is irrespective of CD4 count, no primary MAC prophylaxis if you're able to effectively virally suppress patients. Okay, I think we're pretty much at the end of our time, but uh, here's a quick question. Uh, in the COHERE study, did the investigators differentiate between CD4 um, <laughs> below 100 and between 100 and 200? I did not see that. I just was briefly looking at the poster again because a question similar to that came up in a previous presentation. And I didn't see any distinction between gradients of CD4 count. But um, that's a good, a good question that needs to be explored further. There is a publication circulating on this study, and, and hopefully that will address that question, or they do address that question in the primary publication of the data. All right, I, I think we've pretty much reached our end of our time. Thank you very much, Dr. Benson.